Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 10b, Aeneid Book 1, Lines 539-578. to In this episode, you will listen to Ilianaeus talk some more, and Dido will make the offer of a lifetime. Quod genus, hoc hominum. Quae hunc tam barbara morem permitit patria, hospitio prohibemur harenae, bella cient primaque vetant consistere terra. Si genus huminet mortalia temnitis arma, at sperate deos memores fan datque nefandi. Rex erat aeneas nobis, quo justior alter, nec pietate fuit nec bello maior et armis. Quem, si fata virum servant, si vescitur aura, aetheria nequad huc crudelibus occubat umbris, non metus, officio nec tecertase priorem painiteat, sunt et seculis regionibus urbes, armaque troiano qua sanguine claros acestes. Qua satam ventis liceat subducere classem, et silvis aptare trabes et stringere remos, si datur italiam sociis et rege recepto, Tender ut Italiam laiti latium quepetamus. Sin absumpta salus et te pater optime chucrum, pontus habet Libiae nec speciam resta iuli. At, frenas sicaniae saltem sedesque paratas, unduc ad venti regimque petamus acesten. Talibus ilioneus, cuncti simul ore fremebant dardanidae. Tum, breviter dido vultum de mesa profatur. Soluite corde metum, tucri, secludite curas, res duret regni novitas metalia cogunt, molieret late fines custode tueri. Quis genus aeneadum, quis troiae nesciat urbem, virtutes que viros quaut tantin kendia belli, non obtunsa deo gestamos pectora poini, nec ta versus equos tiriasul jungit ab urbe. Seu vos hesperiam magnam Saturnia quarva, si vericis fines, regem quaptatis acesten. Auxilio tutos, dimitopibusque uabo. Vultis et his mecum pariter considera regnis? Urbem quam statuo vestrest, subducite naves, trostiriusque mihi nullo discrimine getur. At quutinam rex ipse noto compulsus eodem ad foret aeneas, equidem per litera certos demit et libiae lustrare extrema uebo, si quibus eiectus silvis aut urbibus erat. What kind of people is this, or what so barbarous a country allows this custom? We are prevented from the hospitality of the sand. They provoke wars and forbid us to set foot on the first land. If you scorn the human race and mortal weapons, at least hope that the gods are mindful of what is proper and improper. Aeneas was king to us, whom no other was more just than, nor greater in pietas, nor in war and arms. Whom, if the fates preserve the man, if he feeds on ethereal air and does not to this point lie in cruel shadows, there is no fear. 
nor should it shame you to have strived first in service. There are also cities in Sicilian regions, and weapons and famous Akestes from Trojan blood. Let it be permitted to lead up our fleet shaken by the winds, and to prepare beams from the forests and to strip oars, if it is granted to head for Italy with our comrades and leader restored, so that we may happily seek Italy in Latium. But if salvation is lost, and the sea of Libya holds you, best father of the Trojans, and the hope of Eulis no longer remains, Yet at least let us seek the seas of Sicily and the prepared seats from where we have arrived here, and King Acestes. With such words Ilioneus, at the same time all Dardanians roared from their mouth. Then briefly Dido, having lowered her face, speaks out. Loosen the fear from your heart, Teucrians. Shed away your cares. The hard situation and the newness of my rule compel me to construct such things and to protect my borders with a guard far and wide. Who does not know the people of the descendants of Aeneas? Who does not know the city of Troy, its Virtus, and its men, or the fires of so great a war? We Phoenicians do not bear such dulled hearts, nor does the sun yoke his horses so distant from the Tyrian city. Whether you desire great Hesperia and Saturnian fields, or the borders of Eryx and King Acestes, I will send you safe with help and will assist you with resources. Do you wish to also settle equally with me in these kingdoms? The city which I am establishing is yours. Lead up your ships. Trojan and Tyrian will be dealt with with no distinction to me. And if only King Aeneas himself were present, driven by the same south wind, indeed, I will send out shore men along the shores and will order them to survey the borders of Libya, if in any forests or towns, having been tossed out, he is wandering. In our last episode, Aeneas was hiding in his invisibility mist cloak while Ilioneus began speaking with Dido, explaining their story and seeking to move the queen with their pitiable situation. He continues here, but his tone suddenly changes to one of accusation and resentment. For seemingly no reason, Ilioneus becomes hostile, accusing Dido and her people of treating the Trojans badly and of lacking hospitality, and warning her about how the gods view what he calls things that are proper and improper. Another English reading of fondi atque nefandi could be things that should and should not be said. The veiled implication here is that the gods will hold Dido accountable for refusing to offer them hospitality and aid and treating them improperly. The best explanation for this sudden switch in tone is that Ilioneus is referring to something that has happened off-camera, questioning the behavior of the people they first met upon landing in North Africa. Either their group was opposed by armed Carthaginians who wouldn't let them land, or they were arrested by guards and brought to Dido as prisoners and not of their own accord, or something else happened. We can only speculate at this because Virgil never describes the event that causes the accusations to be made, but if they were brought in as prisoners, then it would explain both Ilioneus' angry words and Aeneas's reluctance to reveal himself initially. So why would Virgil keep us in the dark about what happened to Ilioneus and to the second group of survivors? There are a lot of times in the Aeneid that Virgil adopts an omniscient narrative perspective and lets us in on what is happening behind the scenes even when characters within the narrative are unsure of what is going on. This is not one of those times. Virgil firmly puts us in Aeneas' perspective for this whole section, really beginning from when Aeneas ascends the hill and sees Carthage being built. We observe everything from Aeneas' viewpoint, which means that we only know what Aeneas knows. He has no idea what happened to the other group when they landed, so neither do we and the reasons for Ilioneus' sudden accusatory tone would be as uncertain to Aeneas as it is for us. After scolding Dido for a little bit, Ilioneus gets to his ultimate request. He wants to be able to use timber from the forest to repair their ships and oars so that they can either return to Sicily and King Acestes, or, if Aeneas turns out to still be alive, to continue their quest for Hesperia. 
Dido responds by first explaining that her tenuous hold on the land and her new rule have made her take precautions of her fortifications and armed guards. Another indicator that maybe Ilioneus and company were not brought before Dido as honored guests, or even of their own free will. But she quickly explains that she is sympathetic to Aeneas and to his people and his cause. The strange statement that Dido makes about the sun chariot, Nectam Awersos Equos Tyrias Sol Jungit Ab Urbe, is basically a poetic way for her to say that they are not so far removed from civilization as to be total barbarians, that they understand hospitality, and then she offers them help and resources that they need. But she goes much further than that. She offers to give them a place to live permanently as equals in Carthage. This is a huge offer to the Trojans who have been wandering for so long. So at this point, I want to stop for a moment and examine what Dido's motivations might have been for making this offer. She is a shrewd and intelligent ruler, and she would not make this offer unless she had reasons to do so. Recall, though, that Venus had sent Cupid to make Dido and the Carthaginians more positively disposed towards the Trojans, so at least in that respect, she is being swayed in her decision-making. But even under the influence of divinely inspired peace and well-being, this is a huge deal that she makes. She could easily have stopped with offering whatever aid she could provide, but instead she's inviting strangers to join her city and be treated as equals under her rule. So what may have prompted her to make this decision? What benefit would she have gotten from proposing such an arrangement? Potentially, she could view the Trojans' arrival as a way to quickly increase her population. We aren't told how many people she has following her, but it can't have numbered more than a couple thousand or so which is probably roughly the number that Aeneas has with him as well, taking into account 20 ships at a carrying capacity of roughly 50 to 75 people apiece. So joining the two groups of exiles is a way to essentially double her population in no time at all. And the new blood would have been beneficial for genetic diversity, although she would not have expressed the idea that way. Another potential reason could be for protection, since most of Aeneas's men would have been veterans from the Trojan War, strong warriors with battle experience to give her an extra edge on the local people who might threaten her, especially since she kind of cheated her way into the land that she's currently building on. According to the story, when Dido landed in North Africa, she made a deal with an African king named Yarvis. He agreed to give her as much land as she could cover with a bull's hide, so Dido took the hide and cut it into super-thin strips and used the strips to outline a large plot of land, exploiting a loophole in the deal to get significantly more territory for her city than Yarbus ever intended to give her. This, coupled with the fact that Dido rejected Yarbus' offer of marriage, means that she has made an enemy for a neighbor. Dido does say in her speech that she has been forced to take precautions and ramp up security around the city, and her sister Anna will make a similar type of argument in Book 4 when trying to convince Dido to pursue a relationship with Aeneas, arguing that adding the Trojan strength to their own will keep them safe. Finally, Dido will say as much in Book 4 when trying to convince Aeneas to stay with her, that either her brother Pygmalion or Yarbus will come to besiege her city and take her captive. Dido concludes her speech with a wish to meet Aeneas himself. Oh, if only Aeneas were here, she says. And in the lines immediately after, Aeneas' mist curtain suddenly parts, revealing himself dramatically to the entire group. His mother Venus enhances his good looks with some divine glow, and he speaks to the queen, thanking her for the hospitality she has already shown his men. She gladly accepts them as guests and holds a banquet in their honor. But Venus is not done manipulating poor Dido yet. She sends Cupid, disguised as Aeneas' son Ascanius, to spend time with Dido and to breathe passion into her heart for Aeneas and to erase the memories of her love for her late husband Zacchaeus. Book 1 ends at the banquet, where Dido asks Aeneas to tell everyone, but mostly her, 
all about the Trojan War and about their wanderings, which will take up the next two books of the Aeneid. As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. During his speech, Ilioneus questions the behavior of the people they meet on the shores of Carthage. Why has Virgil not described these events elsewhere in the narrative? Who is Acestes? Why does Ilioneus mention him in his speech? What options do the Trojans face at this point, and how does Dido's offer change the choices that they can make? What does Dido do within her speech that is meant to reassure the Trojans? Is she effective? Dido's invitation for the Trojans to settle in Carthage is surprising. What possible motivations, divine or otherwise, might she have had to propose this arrangement? Gratias ago pro ascoltando, et gratias maximas uxori mei quae vocem didones recitavit. Valete.